I have a question for you, Dr. Doak. I love questions. <laughs> At the beginning of my lecture for this week, I talked about... What, what a lecture, by the way. The, I love it. The lecture. Oh, thanks. I love thanks. it. My lecture on um, the keyword was Christ, yep. and I talked a little bit about one of my favorite representations of Jesus mm -hmm. in popular culture, which is Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, yeah. Love it so much. Mm -hmm. um, I want to know from you, what is your favorite artistic rendering oh, of Jesus? Oh, my word. I okay. I I know instantly what my answer is, oh, but I don't. Want, but I don't want to say it. What? Um, Come on. Who? Um. Okay. Here's. I'm. I'm trying to look it up on the internet right yeah. now because I don't want to get the details wrong. Okay. Tr uh. Tried to paint. Okay. I got it. I got okay. it. I got it. <laughs> I know what you're talking. Okay, about. Okay. There's a woman. There was a woman. <gasps> from um, Spain. From Spain in the year oh, 2016. Named I Cecilia. This woman. She noticed that a fresco of of Jesus in her church. Um, in the Spanish city of Borja, I don't know. How to, I don't know Spanish at all. Uh -huh. Was she thought it was looking a little like she thought it was off, like mm -hmm. the, the, the the image. And so she tried to go in and fix the painting. And the way she fixed the painting became instant pop culture gold and a meme favorite because she totally ruined it. <laughs> for that. And I think so. Oh, well, maybe we'll put so a link to this up. This her. isn't even the pop culture smackdown, but I'm going into the pop culture it, meme world. It was here. spoofed on like Saturday Night Live. It was spoofed and everywhere. everywhere. But I, I think it was in a way, though, it, despite all the fun people made of it. On the one hand, it's an it's an amazing spiritual symbol for the way that like just our <laughs> humble human efforts to try to do good and like where we go with it. And it's also just kind of funny. It's like if I were to do it, like in my mind, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a very good like art creator when it comes to painting or drawing or anything like that. And so it's like I actually understand her pain because mm -hmm. you think about Jesus and and the beauty of Jesus, mm -hmm. like who he is and what he means to yep. Christians. And it's like you want to do justice to that and then you yep. end up making something that looks like it's like a it's like a man with a halo of hair <laughs> like a hair scarf or it's like some kind of weird little animal or something yeah yeah that she created and oh, so oh man my heart goes out to her that is good that is good well students welcome to the theo need to know more podcast do you need to know more i need to we know more do. today the subject is christ and we are talking about Jesus the Christ and we are also talking about Jesus primarily in the book of Mark one of my favorite gospels my second favorite gospel oh your second of, yes. of four what's your first favorite well I like Luke because it's got a lot of music in it and oh. it's kind of like musical theater and I love musical theater I, so. I get it yeah yeah what about you what's your favorite gospel? um I, I think I think Mark Prim great. primarily for some of the great reasons you brought up in your lecture I was so excited listening to your lecture by the way I was like oh thanks. I was like I was like jumping out of my seat like yes that I want to talk about that <laughs> that that Okay, so I'm just going to pepper you. There's so many good things to talk about. Yeah, so many things, mm -hmm. but like mm -hmm. um but but like one of my favorite aspects of Mark just as a reader mm -hmm. is its fast pace. Yes. And It'd it's be a great movie, like a film, like a thriller. Totally. Yeah. I think also for scholars it kind of warms my biblical scholar heart. It, oh, really? it warms it. Why? Why does it warm it <laughs> that we started with Mark? It warms my heart because scholars typically, not always my friends, mm -hmm. but typically tend to say that they think that um, Mark is the first gospel authored. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. That's because it is the shortest, right? That, I think that's one of the main reasons. That mm -hmm. doesn't seem like a 
like that doesn't pass the test like for, not for me really just that it's the shortest yeah. but here's why and this is this is a little complex but but and i know that you know this dr Payne, partly because you, you've studied this but like students see if you can follow this okay in the books of Ma- the books of matthew and luke seem to repeat huge portions of the bu- book of yes. mark mm-hmm. and they do so in ways where th- because of the way that they tweak the things that they repeat from Mark, long expanses of, of Greek. So it's not right. like you can't attribute this to just oral memory or just like, well, they're just all telling the same story. It's like, no, there's clear literary dependence. And almost all scholars agree on that. Right. Y- y- Christian scholars as well. Like this isn't like a this isn't like a good controversial. It's this, not controversial. No, it's at not. All. It's not even really controversial. The, the fact that the gospel authors, especially Matthew, Mark and Luke. Right. The fact that they borrowed from each other. Mark is assumed to be the source, though, because. Matthew and Luke will sometimes take something that seems to be in Mark and they'll basically like kind of like, you know, they'll they'll adapt it or adopt it to their own theological purpose, which makes a lot of sense in those books. Luke writing to Gentiles and incorporating music and all kinds of stuff. And then Matthew writing to a primarily Jewish audience, that is to say um, a Jewish audience as opposed to a Gentile audience, not Jews. And so seeing Mark as the basis for that makes more logical sense rather than saying oh, Mark just took a version of the book of Matthew and cut out a bunch of stuff weirdly and made it more ambiguous. Now, in biblical scholarly world, that is usually referred to as Mark and priority. Mark and priority. Mark has priority. Now here, as a writer myself, and I want to hear you reflect Mm -hmm. on this, that theory, I I understand it and I see how the math kind of works out. Yeah. But as a writer myself, that's yeah. not how I write. So that that was kind of one of the things. <laughs> what do you mean? That like I, say more about that. Well, um, I usually write something kind of lengthy, and then I edit it along the way. Oh, so I the see. idea that length is kind mm. of the like that you would tell a story and then riff on right. it, and the rift story comes secondary. Right. Actually, sort of doesn't hold that much water for me. No, I think that makes a lot of. S- I think that the length on its own is never enough. Here's another. Here's a fancy Latin phrase: lectio difficilior. Mm. The difficult reading. Uh, so Lectio Difficilior is a complex phrase. I don't know. I, I shouldn't have even brought that up. Okay. Lectio Difficilior in this case means, so sometimes what an author will do is you would take something that's confusing and terse and ambiguous and you would, something that's difficult. You would try and resolve it. You'd try to resolve it right. as opposed to you wouldn't take something that's clear and cut out stuff. Like when you do that process you talked about, I bet what you cut out is stuff that's repetitive or garbled to try to make it more clear what you wouldn't do is take a kernel of something that's uh you wouldn't take something that's um 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 clear and you wouldn't cut a bunch of stuff out of it that made it less clear Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so i think the thinking is with mark being written first historically is that the i mean and i think this is this takes us right to the heart of something that you brought up in your lecture which is like just the clip and the pace of the book, how it's so fast. And it leaves us at the very end with like this stunning... Kind of breathless. Breathless. Yes. Almost... Fr- it, the book of Mark ends on a scene of fear with women fleeing the tomb, not sure what has happened. That is an amazing cliffhanger of an ending. And then the rest of the New Testament will tell more of that story. But for Mark, as a literary piece, oh, it's brilliant. And Jesus is constantly like telling people not to talk about who he is. And it's like, why won't he do more? It's just the tension builds. You know, there's an entire, and this is a deep, deep evangelical cut for students. <laughs> who, this is really more for your parents. There's a famous artist. Parents? Any parents listening out there? Here, here, this one's for you. We're there's your parents' age, basically. He's not your age. Michael so. W. Smith, who had a song <laughs> about that, oh, this really? idea called Secret Ambition. Ooh. And it's a song written about really Jesus and Mark, about the 
Um, the the messianic secret, as it's called. Do I know that song? Secret ambition. Sing a little bit of the song. Nobody knew his secret, secret ambition. ambition. Nobody knew. His cl- yeah, okay. it goes on and on. Yep. However, um, I think that you're absolutely right that the the mystery and the fast pace of Mark, mm-hmm. um, is I mean it's just a great story. And one of the 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 things that comes up in me- a lot of the gospels, um, I know it comes up. I don't know which one has the most versions of this it could be mark but basically there's lots of times where people are told don't be afraid mm-hmm. and and i think that if you are really familiar with the story or at least you think you're familiar with the story you might kind of get desensitized to that but you have to ask yourself why were people afraid well there's a lot to be in. this is right. um a very like it's a striking story full of of things that would kind of you know, make mm-hmm. you a little bit nervous. Totally. Yeah. Can so. I ask you about in your lecture, you covered yes. Mark through talking about some key terms. I found that to be a really helpful way to mm-hmm. like just organize the material. And so students, we really need you to like read the whole book of Mark f- f- start to finish in it's order to really short. like, yeah, it's, it's it'll easy. Go quickly. It, it'll go quickly. So, it's, so I think this will help you, but like some of the terms you used, you use gospel, Christ, Lord, and savior. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Take us into like one of those words that you want to that you want to say more about or you just want to chat about like in terms of uh, we know what you said in the lecture. If we watched the lecture, which Mm -hmm. we definitely did and should have. (laughs) Don't tell us otherwise. What uh, which of those words do you think bears more, uh, you know, needs needs more? You know, I think the the word that is most fascinating to me is actually the word gospel. Oh, really? Yes, because I can remember the very first time someone taught me some of the stuff that I talked about in the lecture, Mm -hmm. which is this idea that gospel was, for all intents and purposes, a secular term Mm -hmm. that was Christianized. That was very stunning to me. So the idea that you would say, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that would be like sort of an intellectual bait and switch. Like you think... So what is the gospel that you would think of it as primarily a Roman government Mm -hmm. document Mm -hmm. um, about Caesar, about some sort of great thing that had happened, like, you know, tax reform, which y'all are (laughs) too young to maybe. Well, maybe some of you know the pain of paying taxes. You Mm. know, that actually ends up being good news later in your life if you don't want to pay taxes or (laughs) or like, you know, that the army had won some big thing. You know, like you're expecting this one thing and actually what you get is something totally different because if you are paying attention to the themes in the gospel of Mark, it is a book of intense suffering. Oh yeah. So, so this good news is actually not what you were expecting at all. If you read it, there's just a lot of disease and Mm -hmm. um, demonic possession and Mm -hmm. that Jesus is like relieving people of, right? He's, he is an exorcist um, mm-hmm. in this this book. It's really striking. And I come from the charismatic tradition. So I love stories that talk about Jesus, like having dominion mm-hmm. over like the demonic realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when we get to his death, like this is a gosh, it's a story not necessarily of this triumphant mm-hmm. yet, like of this triumphant returning, right. you know, king. It is of a man who's put to death in a really brutal way. That's that's to me the most striking. Oh. I love it. Part. What about you? I got well. Let's. I. I want to stick with this too because it's just so good. Like this word "gospel" in Greek, "evangelion." Evangelion. You can speak Greek with us. Evangelion, yeah. and in the plural, "evangelia." I got so excited when you brought that up that I actually found um, an inscription mm-hmm. that I wanted to read out loud, and maybe you could comment on it just by way of like proving your. It's in case anybody out there is like, really, what do you mean this? With the word "gospel," what we translate as "gospel," 
the Greek Evangelion. What do you mean that that was a secular term? Yeah. It was tax what? So I wanted to actually read an example of how that term might have been used during Jesus's exact lifetime oh, in excellent. a secular way. Yeah. And then I wonder if you could comment on it. So this is the set. What I'm reading is the second part of a two part Greek inscription. And it's from a place in modern Turkey today. But that was part of the Roman Empire during Jesus's world. And in this inscription, you have local magistrates, local rulers. Mm. They're responding to a request by a, a leader named Paulus Fabius Maximus. He I died. I love those Roman names. I know, isn't yeah. it? You got you to gotta name your kids Paulus Fabius Maximus. <laughs> right. Something, okay? Yeah. He died around the year 14 AD. So, like, this is during Jesus' lifetime. Jesus yeah. maybe lived from, like, 4 or 6 BC to maybe 30 AD. Okay? Yeah. And his the request in this inscription is to make Augustus's birthday. Augustus was the the, the emperor mm-hmm. of the Roman Empire. We, like get, we hear that in Luke. That, yep. that yeah, yeah. Keep going. To make his birthday New Year's Day in the Empire. Ah. So this is the inscription that can, I mean, can you imagine that? Like trying can you imagine that today in the United States, like whoever's the president, like we're gonna make the president's birthday New Year's Day in our country, whoever that is, right? Right. So this is an inscription, but this is the way that Roman emperors treated their subjects right mm-hmm. so here's the inscription since the province and i'm going to read the word oh great uangalia in context i'm just going to read it like in greek and it means like the good news or good tidings uangalia okay here we go since the providence that has divinely ordained our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in augustus the caesar <laughs> Whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a savior. So in Greek. Yes, yes. He who put an end to war and will order peace. Caesar, who by his epiphany, his appearance as a god, exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied euangelia. Not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. And since the birthday of the God, that's Caesar, first brought to the world the Euangelia residing in him. For that reason, with good fortune and safety, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year in all the cities should begin on 23 September, the birthday of Augustus. Woo. That's an inscription wow. from the Roman I world. Love using that the you term. brought that example. Yeah. So I mean, care to comment? Well, I get you know my inner historian gets so excited about that stuff because you it, it, when I listen to that, I mean, so many different things are mm-hmm. are firing in my mind. But one of them is how <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like um, rulers who claim a divine heritage, whether or not it's like divine in your person the mm-hmm. way that caesar did at this time mm-hmm. in during the life of christ like prior to that yeah. in in other eras in the roman empire the caesar was not considered to be divine but mm-hmm. by the time we get to jesus um augustus like caesar augustus basically there was no too grandiose of a term for him right like <laughs> he would take it whatever it was he would take it call me he a god call me a savior yeah, whatever it i'm is. loving it i'll take it and you can see why other people would give it to him because he's the most powerful person in the known world at that time mm-hmm. and so like once people figure out that he likes the flattery they're going to give it to him but one of the things that i just think is so fascinating about that is this is about like paying like giving deference to the king of this world right mm-hmm. like the absolute the nobody has more power than this one person Mm -hmm. and that's what's so radical about the the gospel of mark i think you know we get used to hearing that term but wow imagine that like imagine if the united states was basically like the the country of the world like the whole world deferred to us right and then somebody comes which a lot of a lot of countries do we don't have quite that 
scope of the Roman Empire, but we the United States kind of is seen that right. way. Right, we're, we're you know at least we have been like the most powerful, you know, the biggest economy, the biggest right. military, all that stuff. And then you have someone who's from like I don't know some backwater place. I'll I'll pick a place where my family's from, North Dakota or South Dakota, mm-hmm. and like then they say I'm going to tell you who the actual Lord of mm-hmm. this whole place is that is like you expect that the lord is going to come whoa. from new york city from washington dc but they're like small town south dakota from, yeah yeah i mean that's just a really big surprise wow. that to me that's what what why i think i just gravitate toward that term i mean what's uh, what would you say though about like okay so christians then they like took this term and like subverted it almost like, why do that? Why not? Like, why take one of those other terms? Like, what's the claim then that they're making politically by using a term like that? Well, I'll speculate. And then I want to hear your perspective yeah. as I think that this was part of the Christians understand the early Christian understanding of their task as a global task. And mm. so I think from the outset, we see people like the missionary Paul. He was a very culturally radical person. He would do he would go to great lengths to get the message of Jesus out. And he was known for doing that. He'd do all kinds of stuff that maybe tested the boundaries around what people thought appropriate behavior should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I think of the like taking that term on as a practical step in getting a global message out. So like uh. if you're, you know, if you're just talking with Jews in Judea mm-hmm. or Jerusalem, mm-hmm. like you don't need to use that term, really. Right. I mean, you could. It wouldn't hurt, right? Because everybody's in, sure. in that time living under the Roman Empire. But if you want to talk to people in Galatia oh, or, you know, like other places and you want to quickly explain right. what it means to like, well, what it means to call Jesus Lord, mm-hmm. then I think a gospel is like a very fast shorthand. For right. explaining the operation. And what do you one, think? It's one they would have understood. Yeah. I That all makes sense to me. Um, I think that makes sense as a, for, for, that makes sense from several perspectives to me. One is just a communication perspective. What will people understand at that time? Quickly. Quickly. Yeah. It's also um, a political statement because it's like saying yeah. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, which was a really big deal. Right. And it, it, it forces us into questions in our own lives. Like, who am I actually calling God like in my Oof. life? And that, and so this is the spiritual angle on it, I think, which is the angle of idolatry. Yes. Like students, if you're just kind of like getting into faith, getting into spirituality a little bit, wondering about it, here's one of the worst sins you can do according to the Bible. This is in the 10 commandments. This is all over the place. Yes. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Lots of ways to define it. I don't even know if that I can give a final definition, but I'll say in the Christian tradition, in the Ju- in, in the Jewish tradition as well, Idolatry is worshiping something as God that is not, that is not, God. not God. So the yes. one thing you do not want to do, and, I, and I'm, I'm unfortunately just like in my spiritual life in subtle ways and maybe overt ways, guilty of it. It's like the worst sin is idolatry, worshiping something as God that is not God. Is it as obvious as like, have I ever created like a golden statue in my house and bowed down to it? No, maybe I'm not so stupid as to like, you know, do it that way. But, you know, in the millions of little ways in our hearts, we commit idolatry. By, by just worshiping and, and devoting our full self to something that is not Jesus, that is not Lord as Christians. And so I think the use of these terms, it's making that idolatry problem like much more obvious. Because if, mm-hmm. if Caesar, if the leader, if whatever governmental system, if whatever, if whatever claims your allegiance is saying, I'm the savior, I'm going to bring you peace. In that inscription, I love that thing about peace. Because yes, yes. peace comes up a lot around Jesus too in the New Testament. Like, the Apostle Paul uses this language of peace a lot. And it's like, he, he says, peace to you and so on. It's a common thing to say, but it's like, there you have an emperor promising that. And if I am looking at anything and I'm like, this will give me peace. This is my savior. This is my Lord. And this is the Evangelion, the good news. And it's not 
God, Jesus Christ, it's not Jesus Christ, then I have committed adultery, uh, idolatry, spiritual adultery. I've committed idolatry. Um, and I think that that is like, that shows you, that just puts the stakes like really high, I think. Well, I totally agree. And one of the things that I appreciate that you just brought up in that, that little segment was this word of peace. Mm-hmm. Now, scholars of like the early church will often contrast the peace of Christ, like what it means that that Jesus, what the kind of peace that Jesus brings mm-hmm. versus peace as Romans would have understood it in the ancient world, mm-hmm. which like Romans had this doctrine um, known as the Pax Romana, to use another Latin phrase. Oh, yeah. It's basically Latin day here like, on the podcast. Basically like the Roman vision of peace was in essence Roman domination, right? Like right. so Rome rules the world and the world is peaceful because Rome rules it. Right. <laughs> There's kind of a we circular We guarantee the peace. Logic. You do what we say, you get peace. Yes. Boom. And, um, of course, if you step out of that, then you're in big trouble. And Romans were very, very famous for their brutal enforcement of their empire. And mm-hmm. one of the chief, like, one of the, the worst and most painful ways of enforcing that was through state-sponsored killing known as crucifixion. Mm. So I think that one of those, like, and this brings it back around to the the theme of suffering in the Gospel of Mark, but one of the things that's really striking about that is, are you going to choose the peace of Christ, mm. which may end up in mm. you being crucified, right. or will you choose this earthly peace that is built on, yeah. on you know, yeah. like military domination? I want to eventually, we're going to have to read a passage here and talk about it. But before we do that, though, I want to ask one more question that seems really important. I know because I happen to know in the next lecture in our series, we're going to talk more about what it meant for Jesus to be a Jew during the first century. Like what kind of struggles politically and historically did Jews face at that time? But I wonder, could you just reflect like just in the book of Mark, Jesus is clearly a Jew. He clearly lives in a Jewish place. He lives in Israel. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm like flipping to the, the beginning of the book of Mark. Um, and, and he's clearly in Israel. Does it does it matter that Jesus is a Jew in the book of Mark? Does that identity matter? Like, why would it be important for us to understand Jesus in a Jewish place or as a fulfillment of that story? Like, what's what are the stakes for that in Mark, do you yeah, think? Yeah, well, I think for the community and the the author of Mark, I think that one of the the most important things, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as a scholar of the Old Testament, is that we don't really understand any of the big things that he does if we don't understand him as a Jew. Right. So this idea that he is um, having authority over things like the Sabbath, like one of the Ten Commandments that right. we, ta- we talked about the Ten Commandments right. earlier in the semester. Like, how would we even understand what it means for him to have that authority or how would we understand what it means the scandal of him casting demons out or or doing something like that only belongs to God if we don't understand the God of the Old Testament so I think that one of the I my first response to that is that it's important to understand Jesus because the early Christian readers understood him to be the fulfillment or the kind of the, the encapsulation of the story of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't understand that story, then we really miss out. Cause he, it's, it's certainly true that Christians are making claims about like secular claims, like gospel savior, all that kind of stuff that people would have associated with Rome, but they're also making claims about his identity, like Christ, the anointed one that is an ancient um, concept that comes to us from Israel. But what do you think as a, 
Hebrew Bible scholar or Old Testament scholar. Well, I mean, one thing that comes up, I think, really in all of the Gospels is even like the Last Supper. This idea that they're going to celebrate the Passover right before the crucifixion That's at right. some point. And, you know, the exact dating or details of when the Passover is versus the crucifixion. Maybe even the Gospel of John versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a different timing of that. But whatever the case, they all kind of do this. Um, but in, in Mark, it's like if Jesus is celebrating the Passover and he's telling them that he's going to die, it's like we're now like we are living the Exodus story at that point. That's true. And now yeah. we're like now we're forced as readers to think in, in the context of the big story that you're talking about. We're forced now to see Jesus like not forced, but like just encouraged, invited to see Jesus as not just like an average person participating in the ritual of the Passover. Right. But like now we're thinking about like spiritual deliverance of Israel. We're thinking about Jesus himself being killed in this brutal way and blood. And we're thinking about blood and killing. And then it's like Jesus becomes this Passover offering. And that's not symbolism. I think probably an average reader, like if you're a student out there, you'd be like, yeah, I could understand the idea of a righteous guy being killed for his ideas and so on. And that's sure. that's one thing. And you could get a lot of meaning out of just that. But to, to think to try to imagine it as part of Israel's story and to see that even as a Christian reader of the Bible, as God's word to see that as your story. Like the Exodus is the story of our lives and to see Jesus participating in it in that way. Like that's where all of the messages come home. Like that Jesus's crucifixion means something about our sins and our life and our forgiveness and God's plan in the world. And it's all kind of like coming together. Well, one of my favorite um, titles for Jesus, because as you know, you know, we've talked about a lot of the titles for mm -hmm. God, but that is used in Christian circles, which is a throwback term to the book of Isaiah is Jesus as the man of sorrows. Oh, like right. this, this man who takes on mm -hmm. the sorrow and the sin and the guilt in the world mm -hmm. and is um, in, in Mark, he's, he's very clearly portrayed as this sacrifice, right. which students, as you remember, We've talked about, we've used this language, it, it's come up several times, and I think the one that's standing out in my mind, the one that we talked about on one of the Need to Know More podcasts is this idea of, um, it, it reminds me of the story of Abraham and Isaac, mm. and yep. like, but that's not the only one. There's lots of stories. We talked about the weirdness of like sacrifice at the temple, mm -hmm. and all of those strange things, and this idea, like the the scapegoat that we talked about. Oh, like, yeah. All these things come together and we're supposed to understand Jesus as the epitome of that, right? right. The once and for all right. sacrifice, which is a different thing than just being put to death for the nobility of your ideas. Because that happens. I mean, sure. you know, so it's like, I think we're in Socrates. Yeah. yeah. So the philosopher Socrates and just different people, you know, who have been martyred and killed in various ways, Christians and, and, and even not Christians. Um, so there's there there's that element, but there's something deeper here that I think we wouldn't want to miss. Um, okay, okay, we could we get you you we know we could go on like this yes for a long time. <laughs> we wondered, okay, well, let's find a passage, and we wondered if we might find a passage that uses maybe um, a literary device that quintessential mark, mark a quintessential like a like a like a total classic mark yeah. sort of literary <laughs> device, and we thought of it by a complex term, which maybe we can break down, namely the idea of intercalation. Yes. I mean, a lot of people will say that Mark is a, um, I I've heard historians argue that Mark, because it's a shorter story and the Greek is simpler. Like I'm not mm -hmm. really great at reading Greek, but I, Mark is easier for me than mm -hmm. other passages because it's a lower kind of, of language that mm -hmm. because of that, that he's not a sophisticated storyteller, mm. but actually oh, no, he's sophisticated. this idea of intercalation is quite sophisticated, which is the, 
basically the idea that you put stories within stories. I think of it as the um, I forget what the word is for the Russian doll where you like take oh, yeah, a doll like, apart, like a nested, yeah, like a nested, nested Russian doll. doll yeah. yeah, yeah. So in some ways, that's what this that this is. is. That's really sophisticated, actually. I have a lower image to use <laughs> in my world of thinking, which is a food world. I'm thinking of it as the Markin sandwich. Oh, I love that. So it's like you have a bu- you have a bun on the top, then you have so it's like story A, then you have a story like a thing in the middle, the meat or the tofu or whatever you need, my friends, and then you have a bun on the bottom or a bread on the bottom, and then what is I mean like what like but why do you think why would an author do that with stories like why tell a story within a story and then resume a first story again like why put those stories in relationship with each other like that? Well, from my perspective, I think it makes Mark a great teacher because sometimes mm. you need different ways one of the best lecturers i've ever heard i asked him like how do you do this it's just (laughs) like it's like watching a master conductor you know with a at a symphony and he said that he likes to tell people things three different ways and so i think of in my mind sometimes i just need a little while for an idea to like simmer in my mind to use a cooking metaphor before it's actually like ready for me to understand that's that's the reason why it makes sense to me but why do you think no, I, I totally like the author did it that agreed. Way. I think it's a way to it's it's a way to take two stories that might even seem at first to be different. But you're like, wait a minute. They Those stories together. actually are the same. Wait, he's telling the same story, but it sounds different. So I think maybe just by reading one of these, we yes. can get. There's a classic one in Mark chapter eight. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking verses starting at verse 14, maybe. Wonderful. And go through um, the end of the chapter at Mark eight. So eight fourteen. We can we can skip the first um, the first half of it and just or the first third, let's say, of the chapter, and just start at verse 14 and go to the end of the chapter. And you'll be looking for one story and then another story intercalated. Intercalated into the middle. Into that middle. And then and then resolving the story. Oh, I'm so excited for this. Okay, you start or I start. How about you start? Okay. Now, the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They said to one another, It is because we have no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? They came to Bethesda. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to, to his home saying, do not even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. 
Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Oh, oh by the way, yep. Bethsaida. I, I got Bethesda and Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Oh, in verse 22. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mispronounced it. Well, you know, students, we... we, we I'm not perfect. We mispronounce these words. (laughs) This is a complicated world, okay, here. Wow, what a story. Okay. So much. I love the story. Okay, let's get the the literary device correct here. What's story A, and then what's story B, and then what is story A kind of resumed in a new way? Like, how does that work here? So story A, the story about the yeast. I think this is about the disciples misunderstanding Jesus. They're like... And Jesus is like, don't you understand? This is a key mark and theme, the idea of perception. Do you Mm, see? mm -hmm, And he's like, mm -hmm. Jesus is always looking at the disciples. He's like, how stupid are you? Now, can I just for a second, um, you know, just shout out to the disciples here? Because Mm. I mean, if he's if he is the Christ, the savior of the world, Mm -hmm. the one true Lord and the son of man, which is another ancient Israel term, right? right? Daniel chapter you seven. Know, Amazing. It's a little mysterious. A so little bit. It's a lot. It's I'll, it's mysterious. It's I, I, mysterious. I feel like the disciples are kind of like the audience proxy. You know, like a good totally. story will give you a character, totally. you know, that allows you to see everybody. Yeah. And I'm with the disciples on this. Like, I don't totally understand what he's saying. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's and in the in the way the book acts out the experience of following Jesus, that is a constant like thing that as Christians we are always saying like we fail at this. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. God is like He's calling them to a higher standard. That's right. He's also saying He doesn't seem to be too. Jesus doesn't seem like sorry for them. He's like, oh no no no. He's yeah. like, what's wrong with you? Come up to where I am. Get up. Get on my level. Yeah. He's saying this to them, isn't basically. Jesus being like I'm going to use a, a like a more contemporary word like seeker sensitive in the sense that he's <laughs> he's just like get it together yeah he's not <laughs> like, like trying to make this like helpful for everybody he's using a he's using an image yeast in the disciples but it also shows you though the disciples in a little bit of a state though where we might criticize them mm-hmm. it's like he's like talking about spiritual things like beware of the yeast of the pharisees like and the disciples are like they're only thinking about what they probably Material. did wrong like yeah. mat- they're thinking about their bellies and he's <laughs> talking about their souls mm-hmm. and jesus is like there's something more here. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, get it together. I love that. I love that. So that's okay. So that's frames, story A. So that's story A. And yeah. then it shifts, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this story of the curing. Okay, what do you make of the fact that Jesus has to try to heal this guy in stages and it doesn't work the first time? And he's talking about trees oh, walking around? Man. Why do that? What's happening here? Well, I actually wanted to throw this question back to you, but I will. I'll take a stab at it. You got to. Um, because uh, the trees thing, like that, that was curious to me. And I know you've written a lot of, about giants, so I was wondering if there's some sort of like connection <laughs> between trees and giants. But, um, I okay. So this is the thing that that I I was thinking about when I read this is there are a couple of different kinds of healing slash 
wonder working things that Jesus does with people. Mm-hmm. He heals them of physical ailments and also he casts out unclean spirits or yeah. demons, depending right. on the, the particular story. Mm-hmm. And I thought this one was interesting because it's a very physical story, you know? So I don't actually know what to make of the healing taking stages, but mm-hmm. I, I was just like so struck by how Jesus interacted with his body with this person, like his spit. Oh, it's so is, gross. Yeah. And then he touches his, his eyes, he lays his hands on him, you know? I mean, so that was the thing that was just so striking to me is just how much his body is wow. involved in the healing of this person. Yes. And then I reflect as a Christian, you know, like when it says by his stripes we're healed. So I, I go to that, like he's with us. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of what I took from it. How about you? My fr- Well, my first reaction is like, well, Okay, so he needs just two tries to heal someone from blindness. Have you ever seen any of those videos <laughs> yeah, on YouTube? Fair. Students, you can look these up. Have you ever seen those videos where like there's one in particular of a woman? I know exactly what she looks like. She has this dark hair and she has these tattoos on her arm and she hears for the first time oh, with an yeah, implant. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. And she just starts crying. Like, imagine what it would be like to hear or to see for the very first time. Like, the fact that Jesus can't even do that at all. Okay, but you could say, okay, but why can't he do it right away? <laughs> Here's an idea about why it might be like that, which takes us mm-hmm, to the meaning of mm-hmm. the Mark and Sandwich, the intercalation. Right. What's the third story? Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say I am? And right away, they give like a quote, correct answer. You are the, the Christos, a Christ, that's our word, the Messiah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. However, when Jesus tells them what it actually means to be the Messiah, the disciples are like, oh, no, 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 no. That's fake. Fake news. fake news. Sorry, Jesus. And then Jesus has to correct them. So in other words, you could see, I mean, do you think that this is too subtle, too symbolic? You could see a deeper symbolic importance to the two-stage he- healing. Seeing in the in the book of Mark is always vital. Mm-hmm. So it could mm-hmm. refer to the disciples at first, or to any of us actually. At first, when asked about the right answer, quote unquote, they, they give it, like Messiah. But do they really know what that means? Actually, no. They see the concept like trees, like walking, trees, like right? trees walking around. They don't really know. It's after the death and the resurrection that they will understand fully what it means mm-hmm. for Jesus to be the Messiah. So this understand it's it's the story of the healing is about the guy, and it's about God giving spiritual sight. But it's also about us not getting it right away, and about how the disciples need like a couple of shots to get it right. I think another really sympathetic character here is is Peter because mm-hmm. I I totally agree. I mean, I actually think that Peter is like the ultimate Sunday school. Well, I don't people don't do Sunday school as much anymore, but like the <laughs> ultimate like Bible guy, you know, like and he's very brave. So mm-hmm. he because at first the kind of safe answers get deployed, right? right. John the Baptist, right. which is like, you know, he was a rebel rouser, but he it's not that like it, he, John the Baptist and Elijah, who John the Baptist modeled his mm-hmm. his look and a lot of his, the like the iconic parts of his ministry off of Elijah. Right. He was definitely like evoking that. Right. Um, so that that's that's radical. But Christ saying that he's the Christ, mm-hmm. like Peter's willing to take it a step further. But Jesus is like, oh, it's so far beyond that. Like it's so right. far beyond it's, you making this. You are you are you're see, you're seeing all blurry like trees walking around. But you if you see it deeper now, what? Yeah. Do, so only by then reading the third story, the third story in the sandwich, would we then look back on the healing of the blind man and be like, oh, mm-hmm. that actually now if that's really how to interpret this, that's that means this author was really really complex like he was doing like awesome super complex. that's complicated like mark is no simpleton like this is a complex story what do you okay 
we cannot close this out without asking. Without I know. Me asking Actually, you. I know what you're going to ask, and I want to ask you too. So Jesus tells Peter, when Peter denies that Jesus will suffer, he says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> what does that mean? Okay, so I think we all just need to acknowledge this is like such a memeable moment for Jesus because Very a lot memeable. of times, you know, when you see in the, in pop culture, when people were, will say like, not today, Satan. Not today, Satan. I think that's a direct reference to this passage, this very famous passage, uh. which is like, he, okay, he is saying that rebuking Jesus for his um, articulation of his mission as suffering mm-hmm. is tantamount to being satanic. Wow. Okay. Question. Have I gone too far or have I not gone far enough? You decide, Dr. Payne. Okay, okay. Does this story imply, in a spiritual sense, for Christians today, not only the not only the disciples then, but even for us now, that any time that we deny that the Christian life fundamentally means self-sacrifice and suffering, that we have begun worshiping the devil? <gasps> Whoa. Is that is that the implication of Jesus' Get words? Get behind me, Satan. Do you think that's going too far or is it? Is it not going too far? Well, okay. I mean, I don't know if worshiping, say, I don't know if I go with the worshiping stuff, but I, I will say that if we take a, you know, common sense reading of this passage, mm-hmm. which I'm inclined to do, um, Jesus says it's satanic because you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Mm-hmm. And so to rebuke Jesus for, the suffering and not only the suffering, but the rejection mm-hmm. that he experiences, which let's just all be clear, like rejection is a pretty profound sense, a profound experience of suffering. If any right. of you have been rejected, right? I don't know. I, how could I don't know how to interpret it any other way. Wow. What do you think? It, it feels like a really serious challenge that if I want to try in any way to deny that in Jesus, God actually suffered. And that that suffering is actually a path that we are to take in many, many ways as people of faith. Yeah, like I don't want Jesus to tell, you know, to be like acting like Satan is speaking (laughs) through me or that I have become like Satan in that moment, an adversary, an opponent to what God wants to do in the world. Whew.